Last week what we did is we kind of rehashed what we did nine weeks ago, which was looking at over the entire book, just kind of getting a survey of it. We saw that John's theme and purpose is stated in verse, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that he's trying to prove that Jesus is God, the Son of God, and that by belief in him we can have eternal life. That's what he's after. That's what he was trying to prove as his main theme. Now, there's other sub-themes in there, and we'll cover them as we go throughout, but that's the overarching purpose for his writing the book. He says, this is why I wrote these things down. Talk a little bit about the outline. Remember, there's just prologue, epilogue, two big halves in the middle. And the two big halves in the middle are in verses chapter 119 through 1250. It's just Jesus' public ministry and his rejection. And then after that, chapters 13 all the way through 20, that's Jesus' um, private ministry, in a sense, but also the upper room discourse and his crucifixion and the passion narrative. And in the end, a little button on the end of the book is chapter 21, where John, his position is made clear and Peter is reaffirmed as an apostle. We also talked about the seven signs that John really kind of makes the whole thing pivot around. Really just chapters 1 through uh, 12, that those miracles that God, that Jesus does are for a purpose. And that their, their purpose is to show that Jesus is God and to bring people to faith in him. And he elaborates on them. We also looked at a few unique contributions. We looked at the new birth, that John dives into that more than any other biblical writer, the sovereignty of God and salvation, the concept of election and predestination is replete throughout John, uh, long discourses and dialogues, that John lets Jesus, not in the sense that he's letting him, but the story that he's telling of Jesus, have these long discussions and dialogues with groups of people and individuals that we don't necessarily get in the other four Gospels. And of course, the I am statements, the seven I am statements that Jesus uses are in here. We talked about that last week. Kind of to wrap up that overview, I'm going to give you a quote from Martin Luther, the great reformer. He said this about the Gospel of John. He said, this is the unique, tender, genuine, chief gospel. Should any tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the epistle to the Romans and the gospel according to John escape him, Christianity would be saved. It's a pretty big statement. Martin Luther is saying, if, if a tyrant comes and takes away our Bibles, if you can snatch John and Romans, we can have Christianity. That's, that's a massive statement. But what we didn't do last week was introduce John himself. Who is John? It's not the Baptist, to just burst your bubble, if that's who you thought he was. That's not the, that's not the John we're talking about that wrote. This is John the disciple. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. He wrote those five books of the Bible. And his position in the ministry of Jesus is so unique. He, Jesus ministers, in a sense, kind of in concentric circles. He has that ministry to the masses, right, where he's preaching at the Sermon on the Mount, at the Sermon on the Plain. He's feeding the 5,000, massive groups, right? Then it gets kind of down to a little further in Luke chapter 10. He has this number of 72 that he sends out to go and to minister and to preach the good news. And then you have kind of those who are closer than the 72 but are not yet disciples. So people like Mary, Martha, Lazarus, some of the other women that follow Jesus, they're, they're not the 12, uh, but they're not the 72. And then you have the 12, so you have all the 12 disciples. Then you have the three you can specifically think of those three, Peter, James, and John, as those who go to the garden with Jesus. They go to the Gethsemane with him. But then you have the one, and that's John. 
John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And at the Last Supper, John's the one reclining the closest to Jesus. And when Jesus is dying, and specifically we're going to see in John 19, verse 26, when Jesus is dying on the cross, he entrusts the care of his mother, which was his duty as the oldest Jewish son. He entrusts the care of his mother, not to any of his brothers that he had, but to John. He says, he says man, behold your mother, woman, behold your son. So John has a special and unique position to write this gospel as the one nearest to Jesus, maybe closer perspective even than Mary would have had. And a lot of times when we look at heroes, the biggest insight, the most powerful, meaningful insight that we get about that individual comes from their wives or from their husbands, depending on who you're writing about or reading about. Uh, and Jesus is obviously not married, so John kind of steps into that role being that closest person to give a rounding out of who Jesus is in ways that maybe we wouldn't have gotten without it because Jesus wasn't married. I know I think about this as an example. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a big hero of mine. He was a preacher uh, in England and London from the 40s and 30s all the way through the 60s. He retired in late 60s, early 70s. And this guy was so robust that when the Luftwaffe was bombing England, he preached through it as like bombs are shaking around the building and plastered, I said at one point, plaster fell off the ceiling. It was on his shoulder and he just kept preaching. And then the pastoral assistant walked up and like dusted off and he kept going. So he has this persona of being just this stalwart, like faithful guy. But then when you ask his wife, she said this, she said, you will never understand my husband until you first know that he was a man of prayer and that secondly, he was evangelist gets this perspective that nobody else would have seen. It, nobody else saw his prayer life, but his wife, the one who's closest to him. Uh, and she's able to explain that to us about Dr. Lloyd-Jones. John is the, the best version of that that we get to help us round out what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already given us. John's this close, close-up moment of, with Jesus that we get this glorious gift of having the Gospel of John. So now we know who John is. Our outline is simple this morning. We're just covering three verses. Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator. That's all John's trying to prove in the first couple of verses. Look at verse one. In the beginning was the word. Now you've already noticed something right off the bat. that Jesus' birth narrative is entirely skipped. There's no genealogy. There's no, there's this woman named Mary. None of that. John doesn't record anything of what we would call the Christmas story. Matthew and Luke discover, or cover it extensively, but John has a different aim. He's trying to start off with a bang, immediately grab your attention. That's his point by starting in this way, to engage the reader by not being mundane or predictable or, um, or common happenstance. Remember, because we learned that John wrote after Matthew, Mark, and Luke were already written, so he has a different perspective, trying to captivate the reader by not being cliche or predictable. What happens when we hear cliches? What if I looked down at my notes right now and said, Webster's Dictionary defines, you would have all tuned out immediately. Or if I said, you know, a long, long time ago, or you know, it all started when, that's when everybody checks out. It's cliche ways to introduce anything. And John doesn't do any of that. He just says, in the beginning was the word, and you're immediately flooded with a bunch of questions. But remember, John's stated purpose for writing to convince the reader that Jesus is the Savior, the one sent from God who is God, and by belief in him, 
you have everlasting life. That's not a boring message. That's not a casual conversation. Eternal life and death hang in the balance. Lives depend upon that message. Not to say that the other gospel writers don't care about that. That's abundantly not true. But John's after one needlepoint. He's, he's trying to hit one tiny target. So he's going, coming in with a bang. So we're immediately forced to ask, well, who is the word? In the beginning was the word. Who is that? Well, we know from verse 2. We haven't read it yet, but we'll get there later. It's, the word is a he. So who is he? Well, verse 1 says that he is God. So then why didn't John just say, in the beginning was God? That's exactly the point. That's what he's going after. I'm trying to show you, John says, that the word, Jesus, is God. The word is Jesus, and John is introducing the reader to him in a way that draws us in. Because the Holy Spirit is the actual author of John, right? As he has, he's the actual author of all of the scripture, and the Holy Spirit doesn't write boring drivel. So he's engaging us and bringing us in. But then how do we know? I just told you that the word is Jesus. But what you should be thinking is, how do we know that? How do we know that the word is Jesus? Well, if you skip down to verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, you're like, okay, well, that, that sounds like Jesus. That's, that's pretty convincing. But where else did John write? We talked about he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in Revelation. Did he write anywhere else in any of those places that would call Jesus the word? Is there any other thing that's like that? Well, absolutely there is. Revelation 19. Turn with me there. Or you can follow along up on the screen if we got it up there. Revelation 19, verse 11. Listen to this. This is John saying, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which, which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them, the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's Jesus. The word of God is what he's called there. John's apocalypse records it as such. So Jesus is, in big theological terms, the divine logos. Logos is just the Greek word translated there, word. Divine logos. So the church, we've been given an incarnate word and a written word. And the two are often paralleled in the scriptures, meaning Jesus in the Bible. Written word, incarnate word. They're often paralleled as being the same thing in the Bible. We can look at the Gospel of John and see that here. Look at John 14, 6. We know this one, that Jesus says he himself is the truth. I am the way, the truth. And then what does Jesus say about the word in John 17, 17? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is saying, I'm the truth. Bible's the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus also says, I am the life. I am the way, the truth, the life. And elsewhere... Just in the Gospel of John, he calls the Word of God, just the Bible, the Scriptures, he calls that life. Look at John 5, 39, 40, and 47. 
he's rebuking Pharisees at this moment, but he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. But if you do not believe in Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? John 6, 63. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. I am life and the words are life. And then at the end of John 6, this pivotal moment. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? People have just been flooding away from Jesus at this point. They don't want to listen to him anymore. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So Jesus himself is truth and life. The Bible is found truth and life. Divine word, written word. So see, John is writing to all kinds of people, but he's really trying to hit a couple of groups of people. People who have converted to Judaism but are from outside, they're Gentiles. People who are just straight up Gentiles, haven't converted at all. And those who are in Judaism, those who are Jewish. And so what he does with this word by saying that in the beginning was the word, using that term logos in the Greek, he's going after Greek philosophy in a sense. Because they talked about this a lot. The Greek philosophers discussed intensively or extensively this idea of the logos, that it's reason or logic and it's this kind of supernatural force that's out there that kind of holds things and brings order to the universe, even though itself is an abstract force. But John is saying to those people, hey, that thing that you think about and you talk about all the time, logos, Jesus is that. It's not an abstract force. It's a person. It's a personal God who took on flesh. So he's bringing them in. But now in the Old Testament, because he's also speaking to those who are Jewish, in the Old Testament, how did God relate to his people? What did he do? How did he have a relationship with them? He spoke to them, right? He speaks directly to Adam, speaks directly to Noah, speaks directly to Abraham, speaks directly to Moses. And with Moses, you have the fullness of the law come. And then when they ignore the law, what happens? He speaks to the prophets and then they speak to the people. So that's how God does in the Old Testament. So the Jewish audience is like, I'm following you. Like this is kind of God's MO, words, using the word to relate to us. So he explodes the pagan Greek idea and he draws the Jewish person in who's committed and knows their Old Testament. But why hearken back to the beginning? In the beginning was the word. Doesn't that sound eerily similar to what we just read? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Sounds exactly like Genesis 1.1. So the message of the Bible and the message of Jesus Christ go back to the explosion of creation that's recorded for us in Genesis 1.1. Now, if Genesis 1.1 is true, we're sent back to it, so now we have to deal with it. If Genesis 1.1 is true, then it settles every debate that any group of humans could ever have about the origin, the meaning, the requirements, and the extent of life on earth. If Genesis 1.1 is true, done. No more discussion. It's a, it, there's no debating. If there was a beginning to life, there must have been a beginner. And whoever is that beginner must possess the power of being. We talked about that a lot in our Old Testament survey. The power of being. God saying to Moses, I am. I never was. I always am. I have the power of being inside myself. He always exists and never comes into being. Now, if that beginner of all things who has the power of being speaks, then whatever he says 
is absolute and cannot be argued and cannot be debated. He is the determiner of truth. If, if Genesis 1-1 is true, all of that is true. Now then fast forward 3,000 years from one, Genesis 1-1 to John 1-1. And what do we have? We have almost the exact same introduction. We're supposed to link these things together in our Bibles. You're supposed to do that. Jesus is the word in the beginning. And then how did God create everything? I tried to emphasize it when I was reading earlier. And God said, and God said, then God said. That's how he created. Ten times in Genesis 1, he created by speaking words. Now, we haven't even moved past the first phrase of John 1, 1, and we've literally connected Jesus from Genesis to Revelation, all the way through from John's first few words in this verse. It sounds like John is saying that Jesus is God. But in case we missed that from in the beginning was the word, John keeps writing. He's not even done with the first verse. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He wasn't just present in the beginning. Uh, he was present with God. And he wasn't just present with God. He was God. And this is a bold statement. Now, this fleshes out our doctrine of the Trinity. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, in summary, in the, uni in the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question nine, answers that Trinity question like this, saying that all three are same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. They're fully God, each member of the Godhead, but yet have distinctions in their personal properties. And we read that also in chapter one of Genesis, didn't we? What did God say when he got to man? Let us make man in our image, speaking as the Trinitarian God of the Bible. So then, if Jesus was God, then what does that make him now? God. You can't stop being God. Jesus is not like God or similar to God. He doesn't just have more God-like traits than you or I do. He is God. That's what John's saying in John 1.1. 1, 1. Now, if you've been in church for a while, maybe that sounds pretty normal. That's not that, that big of news. That, that, that's, none of that's ruffling any feathers to say that Jesus is God. But let's go at it from a reverse angle so that we appreciate it more. What if he's not God? What do we lose if Jesus is not God? Well, I think that we lose, and the Bible would say that we lose. We lose Christianity, and we lose the gospel if Jesus is not God. And Jehovah's Witnesses are about that. They're saying that Jesus was just like God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was like God, is what their translation says. He's not really God. He's like God, or he's like a God. The Mormons go even further and just say that Jesus was a different God. And you could be a different God, too, if you just kind of follow the rules of that. Look it out in the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price and that kind of thing. So we got to make sure that we have this correct. If Jesus is not God, then what he does on the cross is not what we read. If Jesus is not God, he can't endure the full wrath of God. It's not that he just died and that the, the thorns were really long, the whip was really sharp, and the cross was really heavy. It's that he was enduring the full wrath of Almighty God poured out on him. And you can't endure that unless you are God. And if he doesn't endure that, then he can't pay for us. Secondly, if Jesus is not God, then he can't rise from the dead and then stay risen. 
Can you just rattle off a few people from the scriptures who were brought back from the dead? You can't even leave first and second kings without seeing two or three resurrections. Paul brings back Eutychus who falls out of a window from the dead. Lazarus comes back from the dead. Lots of people came back from the dead, but then guess what? They died again. Jesus can rise and stay risen. And if he can't do that, which means that he's not God, then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are the most pathetic people on the planet for following somebody who cannot conquer death. So we lose everything if God, if Jesus is not God. He must have always been and continue to be God. One interesting note that a commentator wrote that was awesome that I picked up on was that all of verse 1 is written in the imperfect tense. So this is kind of a way to think about it. Kent Hughes translated it like this. He said, in the beginning was continuing the word, and the word was continuing with God, and the word was continually God. It just keeps going on and on. And then look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Remember how he said last week that John liked to be intentionally redundant? Didn't he just say that? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You, you, you said that, but he's being intentionally redundant, repeating himself. He wants us to be crystal clear that before time began, Jesus already existed. He was in the beginning. It's not that Jesus was the first created being or that he's the supremely created being. Otherwise, John 1, 2 would say he came about in the beginning. Or Jesus was our divine leadoff batter. He took a swing at it and then everybody else came after that. No, no. He was there before the beginning began. He wasn't brought forth in the beginning. He was already there. And that's something that can only be said about God. Now that brings us to verse 3. If he's really God, if he really is, and that's what John's trying to prove in these first two verses, then what ultimately proves him to be so? And what ultimately is just going to set it all down? We, no more argument, no more discussion. Jesus has to be God. What would do that for us? What makes, in a sense, ask this question, what makes God, God? Is it his wrath? Is it his mercy? Is it his justice? Is it his grace? Is it his wisdom? What is it that makes God, God? If God is God, then he must have complete control over everything. Not just everything that exists, but everything that doesn't exist. If there's anything not under the control of God, then whatever that thing is, is God. That's what we have to realize. I mean, God's sovereignty is what primarily distinguishes him as God. Not to say that his wrath, love, mercy, justice, that he, he has that in equal levels as we do. We're not talking about that at all. But what ultimately sets him out is this sovereignty. He must be so sovereign that when he speaks, even things that don't exist obey him. That's the level of sovereignty he's got to have. Because we just read in Genesis 1, when light didn't exist, what did it do? It obeyed God and it showed up. When birds didn't exist, when plants didn't exist, when night and day didn't exist, what did they do when God said, show up and do this? They show up. They came out of nowhere. And the old church term for that, the church meaning capital C, going back uh, 2,000 years for that is ex nihilo, Latin for out of nothing God created. And if you can't do that, then you're not God. And now, we can't even imagine nothing. I've talked about this before, but it's a deeply profound concept. We can't even imagine nothing. Try to imagine nothing. You're thinking of blackness. You're thinking of emptiness. 
That's something. You're thinking about just this swirling mist of despair. That's something. We can't even think about nothing. Because when we think about something, nothing, we're thinking about something. There's a thought in our brain. Even emptiness is the opposite of fullness, and that's something. We can't even think about that, but God was there when there was nothing. See, this is what makes, as a side note, this is what makes Darwinian evolution utterly incompatible with the Bible. Utterly incompatible with the Bible. Because what does it say? It says when there was nothing, there was an explosion, and then everything. And there's this really famous uh, soundbite of R.C. Sproul saying, nothing doesn't explode. If there was nothing, nothing doesn't explode. You have to have matter to get something. You need particles or atoms and friction and heat and oxygen and something to make an explosion. So how does that happen? You can't. If nothingness preceded the universe and now we have something, then there must have been something or someone before that that has the power of being. Imagine the events of Genesis 1 because that's what's going to make Jesus God. Imagine the events of Genesis 1. God speaks and then atoms, particles, neurons all come out of nowhere. And then they form together to make whatever makes up light, whatever makes up DNA, whatever makes up elements. He speaks the periodic table of elements into being. We discovered those. He spoke them into being. It's almost as if creation is flowing out of the mouth of God. Only God can create. That's what we're going to have to say about Jesus. Only God can create. We don't create. All we do is rearrange. Hear that about that? We just rearrange existing material. We don't actually create anything. If marble and the human form did not already exist, then Michelangelo could never have made the statue of David. He needed marble and he needed the human form. And he needed a hammer and a chisel. That already needed to exist. We didn't really create David. He just rearranged marble pieces to look like what maybe David looked like. Think about Leonardo. That if he didn't have colors already that existed in nature, and you could mix them together and get the right kind of color you wanted, he could have never have painted the Mona Lisa. He took what already existed, rearranged it in a pleasant way. And if karate and radioactive slime did not already exist, then Michelangelo and Leonardo could never have become the Ninja Turtle. <laughs> it, it just follows. That was for the kids that I knew was going to be in here. Only God can create. All we can do is pleasantly rearrange. That's all we can do. Job says in Job 26.7 that he, God, stretches out the north over the void and he hangs the earth on nothing. He just stuck it there. And if John is going to assert that Jesus is God, then Jesus must be able to create ex nihilo. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There's John's redundancy again, and it's on purpose because this, this concept is so colossal. Jesus made everything, and nothing exists that he didn't make. So he has a positive and a negative states the same thing in both sides to an affirmative and a negative matter, affirming Jesus created everything we see and denying the possibility that anything came into being uh, without him. Anything that we see came into existence without him creating it. Now, we tend to only think of God the Father as creator. 
Now, he was certainly present at creation, and he spoke the words of creation, but Jesus, according to John 1, 3, did the actual creating. You know, it's a wonder we don't know this with greater popularity. I remember when the first time this concept came across to me, thinking, I've been in church for I don't know how long, and that was never once put forward, that Jesus was present at, a, at the creation, let alone doing the creating. I never, like, it was just the fact is all over the Bible. And that happens to us often. That's why I'm a huge proponent of you individually reading through your Bible constantly. I mean, I, I didn't come across this, Jesus creating, until I started reading the Bible on my own, and then you just can't get away from it. But then that happened in other ways, too. You ever read 1 Samuel 17? David and Goliath? There's one massive thing that they skip in every Sunday school lesson and certainly in all the VeggieTales movies. What, what really killed Goliath? David chopping off his head and then carrying it around. That's not in the VeggieTales version. I remember reading that going, what in the world? I thought the rock was just perfect. Just knocked him down. So we read our scriptures and we read like, oh, this is what is true. Jesus is the creator. And it's everywhere. God creates. We know that. Look at Psalm 33. We'll read that somewhere else. And then we'll read verses that back up Jesus being the creator. But God creates like this. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. That sounds exactly like what John's been saying, right? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. He spoke the word of the Lord. That's how creation's coming into being. John's saying the same thing. And then look at Colossians 1.16. For by him, we know from verse 13 in Colossians 1 that it's Jesus. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That could not be easier to understand. Jesus is the one who did the creating. Everything that we see and everything that we can't see, the physical realm and the spiritual realm, Jesus is the creator. Hebrews 1, 2 through 3 sheds an even more light on this. But in these last days, he, being God, has spoken to us by his son, being Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He spoke the words, Jesus does the creating. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, we're pulling back the curtain a little bit now. We're seeing more of the Trinitarian nature of God as it relates to the creation of the world. The Father decreed creation to happen. Jesus is how creation came to be. But Hebrews goes even further when it says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the force that is continually keeping the universe intact. First time, I'll never forget First time going through a study in the book of Hebrews, an actual in-depth study led by a guy who discipled me, and he had some other guys come, and it was 6 a.m., so we knew we were committed. We came, and we went to this thing every single, uh, it was like every single day for like three weeks. And uh, we sat down in this group, and then the leader of the group, he said, what do you think, when we got to Hebrews 1, you know, right out of the gate, he said, what do you think happens 
if Jesus takes a day off of his role and we are being good-hearted, sincere Christians in a Bible study, we sat there and refused to answer. Like everybody does in a Christian Bible study. I'm not answering that question. He said, he answered, had to answer his own question. He said, then the whole thing disintegrates. That's what happens if Jesus takes a day off of his role because he's the one actively holding it all together as the one who created all of it. So what kind of power are we talking about that Jesus has? Now, does this kind of help shatter this perspective that Jesus is kind of a monotheistic Gandhi or just a really Mr. Rogersy type guy? We're not talking about some limited, finite philosopher. We're talking about God when we talk about Jesus. John, what he's doing, he's painting a picture of Jesus far more grand, far more expansive and majestic than we were prepared for. And we're only thir three verses into the prologue. Not the whole book, the prologue. We weren't ready for this. He's powerfully introducing Jesus to us. And he's making some colossal claims. Claims so grandiose that if they aren't true, then John is a blasphemer. That's a big deal. He's a heretic. Now, kids, if you don't know what the word blaspheme means or blasphemous means, that's saying something untrue about God. Not just saying something like, well, I bet God's left-handed. Saying that somebody else is God. That's blasphemous. And John knows, as a Jew, that God's already spoken in 39 books. And the four Gospels have been written in some of the other New Testament books. So he knows what it says in the Torah, that it demanded his execution if he blasphemes God. He knew Isaiah quoted God in Isaiah 45, 21 through 22, when he says, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a savior, there is none Besides me, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. John knows that verse. So if he's going to say that Jesus is God, he better be right because God says there is no other God. He also better be a Trinitarian because there's no other way to have that be true that God the Father is God and God the Son is God unless you are Trinitarian. So then as readers, what we should expect is for John to substantiate these claims that he made in verses 1, 2, and 3 throughout the rest of the book. He's going to prove this case that Jesus is God. So now conclusion, winding us down. Why, you just got to ask John, why begin like this? It's so different than the other three Gospels. So different. And the language even feels different than the epistles of Paul that we all read so much. Why, why begin like this? He, he wants to be clear. This is the best I can come up with. He wants to be clear right out of the gate that Jesus is God. He doesn't merely emanate from God. He's not merely like God. He is God. And he wants to be clear that Jesus is sovereign over creation. And we're going to see that in his first miracle in the next chapter. And this is going to blow us away even when we read verse 14, that he is sovereign and he is God. And he took on flesh and he walks among us. That's supposed to shock us. Wait, what? And also, didn't you notice that not only was there no birth story of Jesus, there's no genealogy of Jesus? 
like Matthew has and like Luke has. Why? Because God doesn't come from anyone. God doesn't have a genealogy. If somebody exists before God, then that person is God. He doesn't need a genealogy. No one precedes God. See, Matthew's trying to show uh, in large part that Jesus is the Davidic king rightfully ruling over the kingdom of God. Luke is trying to show that Jesus was truly human. So he, we get those two genealogies in that way. But John is displaying the full deity of Jesus, and the deity cannot have a genealogy. Otherwise, he ceases to be a deity. So John's charting for us a marvelous course, and he, he's trying to get us whisked away to the person of Jesus, laying down these divine credentials. And it almost feels a little bit intimidating to have a book start like this. And you really kind of take it in. You're like, this is pretty deep. This is, these are lofty concepts that we're beginning with. Where is it going to go from here? And that's on purpose. But what, one of the things I love that reformers talked about is God in the scriptures is speaking baby talk to us. He's, he, he's condensing down himself and infinite truth into written language. He's talking baby talk to us. And John, we see that so clearly. Holy Spirit authoring this book through the pen of John knows this is high. This is lofty stuff. So you know what he's going to do? He's going to keep his language real simple. And he's going to repeat himself a whole lot. So that these big, lofty, maybe even intimidating concepts of who God is and who we are become more palatable. That's on purpose. And he stays laser focused on his mission to prove to the reader that Jesus of Nazareth is God among us that he is the long-anticipated son of God, and that eternal life is found by believing in him alone. Laser-focused on that. Great quote to kind of sum us up for this morning that I read in a commentary by Dr. Richard Phillips. He said, John is so simple that children memorize their first verses from its pages. Isn't that true? If you're a Christian, you just immediately are born again and you know John 3.16. You don't have to try to learn it. It just comes into your brain. It's just already there. And we learn the other ones, like John 5, 24, John 14, 6, like all these, we learn those, we memorize those as kids. But then he goes on to say, and so profound the dying adults ask to hear it as they pass from this world. They want to hear it read from John. I want to hear it read from John. And then he said this, it is said that John is a pool safe enough for a child to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to drown in. That's how the Gospel of John feels. Can you imagine that, kids? A pool that you could walk in and be safe, but it's also deep enough for an elephant to sink in? That sounds like a pool I don't maybe want to swim in. But that's what John is in the sense that kids can really grasp it. The youngest in the faith can see the glory of God and the, and the majesty of Christ. But then those of us who have been seasoned in the faith, even theologians who sit and study this all the time, they start getting overwhelmed by it. Simple enough to grasp, deep enough to keep us forever. So I'm going to ask us, don't be intimidated. Let's be excited. And let's show up every week ready to plunge further into the white water of understanding who our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a wonderful blessing it is to have your word spoken to us in baby talk. That you condense down your infinitude and the truth 
that emanates from you into language that we can understand, that we can read, that we can ponder, that we're never done with, but it's never unapproachable, that is, that is vast enough to keep us locked in and engaged for a lifetime, but is simple enough to be there as comfort in our most frazzled moments. What a gift it is to have your written word, and what an even supremely more great gift it is to have the incarnate word who came, took on flesh, walked among us, perfectly kept your law, died taking the full wrath that we rightly deserved, and rose again to eternal life that we might also follow him in that same path from dirt to glory. Father, bless our study of John as we walk through this together, and bless us as we continue to figure out how to come out of this uh, pandemic and stay-at-home orders. Let us have grace upon grace in talking with each other here amongst the church, and let us have grace upon grace as we meet together and these new realities come into play because we want to see ourselves become a brighter and more refulgent beacon of your glory in McKinney, Texas. And we know that in the book of John, you say that they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Help us do that well, faithfully, and unendingly. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.